This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. There's certainly a lot of talk about some upcoming action, maybe as soon as next year, with some long-awaited IPOs, Carol Masser. Yes. The big boys. Lyft, Uber. The Holy Grail. (laughs) Uh, Lonnie Jaffe is here with us. He's Managing Director for Insight Venture Partners here in our Bloomberg Interactive uh, Broker Studio. Lonnie, great to have you back with us. So is next year the big year? This is when they all come out and everything changes? Or we find out what they're really, really worth? Are we just in a new (laughs) world of uh, companies staying private? It's interesting. Companies are certainly staying private for longer. The, The market has changed a bit. The availability of private capital has made it possible for companies to IPO when they want to instead of having to IPO. And uh, that's been pretty interesting in terms of the impact it's had on the the timing. That so, so you look at something like Uber or Lyft, and I, I do expect them to go out next year, um, and maybe even some of the other multi-sided marketplaces like Airbnb. Um, but they'll do it because they want to maybe get currency for acquisitions or to provide liquidity to some of the early employees rather than because they need to find growth capital, which they can find in the private markets now. I mean, are, are, what are the numbers you're hearing? Uh, I'm just looking at some of the Bloomberg stories. $120 billion valuation for Uber? Yeah, it's in the ballpark of 10 times their revenue run rate, which is what people are uh, whispering, which is um, you know very high. But the larger companies that have economic power, so uh, demand-side economies of scale, something whereby the product gets better as more people use it, like Uber does, uh, can actually get some really nice multiples in the public markets. Well, let's talk about that valuation question, because there is this thought out there that because the public market has not had a crack at these guys, haven't really gotten a look at what's really underneath uh, the businesses, that these have been wildly overvalued over the course of many, many, many uh, fundraising rounds. What's your take on that? You've seen a lot of these books. What what do you make of that? Well, in the ride-sharing space, also, you you have an increase in potential competition. I mean, even yesterday in the Tesla earnings call, Elon Musk mentioned that they're planning to uh, go into the ride-sharing space. And even with a little bit of an Airbnb model where individual Tesla owners can put their cars on the grid and make up to 70% of the revenue in the ride-sharing, uh, and just give a 30% cut to Tesla. Right. Google's been going, I uh, think about going into the space more aggressively with Waze. And so uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see them try to get into the public markets ahead of some of those uh, formidable competitors getting trapped. Or, Sh- or Shira Ovide, she writes a column and she had put out a story uh, earlier this month, $120 billion valuation doesn't necessarily make Uber a real company. <laughs> you know, whether or not there's sustainability, I guess time will tell. And what's you know, I'm thinking, Jason, about a story that's in the magazine this week that looks at Uber Eats and how they are using yeah. data to help, like, existing restaurants come up with different food offerings and kind of creating a virtual restaurant for people in, in neighborhoods. So, I mean, let's not forget, they have an awful lot of data, and they can put that to work. 
Yeah, I mean, we're increasingly investing in companies that have data-oriented economic power sources. So, for example, we invested in a company called Tractable that has a uh, does image recognition to uh, assess how much it's going to cost to repair property damage to vehicles <laughs> uh, or use data to do... We invested in a company called Cura Systems that does analytics on legal contracts. And so what can happen is if you get a company like that to scale, it can have more data and therefore get more customers and it can be a, a, a source of economic power, a lot like network effects. So, Lonnie, as all the attention uh, you know gets focused on the Ubers and the Lyfts and the whatnots of the world and the IPO market, you know... You're a guy who I'm sure is fielding a lot of calls and emails from bankers all the time about whatever's in your portfolio. Uh, What's the tone of the conversation? What are you saying back to them? Obviously, it's a case-by-case basis, but what's your general outlook as you think about this? So Inside Venture Partners has had four IPOs so far this year. Uh, Companies like DocuSign, uh, Pluralsight, which is uh, solving the technology shortage, uh, skills shortage problem, uh, and uh, Smartsheet. Tenable, which is a cyber risk exposure company. Uh, you know, in general, in our portfolio over the twenty-some-odd-year history of the company, we've had a little over two hundred and thirty M&A exits and about forty IPO exits. Huh. So, I, you know, I, that's about a five x ratio. Yeah. So, I, I would expect that ratio to stay more or less consistent over time. Uh, I mean, that being acquired by a public company in some ways is a little bit like an IPO. The business is still now public, right? Even right. though it's no longer a standalone business. But you're getting paid. Yeah, and companies can, it's not an irreversible process either. You can go public and then you can go private again and then you can go public again, like SolarWinds went or through Dell. the process. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we see this a lot. Uh, but, you know, does it make, because there is so much money sloshing around to invest in startups for year after, you know, for multiple years, as we've seen with the likes of Uber and Lyft and, and some others, does it make that when that company finally goes public, um, that it is kind of a. Uh, maybe a safer business because it's been around for a while. It's had to kind of maintain, you know, it's an older business, I guess. Yeah, I do think a lot of CEOs have some anxiety over going public before their business model is completely hammered out while they're still experimenting or they can't get consistent quarterly performance. Uh, Another thing is when you're private, you can get more help from your investors. uh, Insight, about a third of our uh, employees are doing things like helping companies with scaling marketing and sales, product management, architecture, how to do M&A. And while in theory you could have a public market investor that did those things, it's pretty rare. Most of the public market investors are focused, uh, to the extent that they're active at all, they're focused on return of capital. Really great stuff. Lonnie Jaffe, Managing Director at Insight Venture Partners, here with Carol and myself in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio so much more to talk about. I feel like uh, as this story develops into 19, we're obviously in a much more volatile market, uh, Carol. And, yeah. You know, but these are these are companies that people have been watching very close. So check it out. Tesla shares rallying big time, surging at one point to their highest price in two months. Profit blowout reversing much of Elon Musk's damage to the stock. We're going to get into all of this. Dana Hall covers all things Tesla for us. She's technology reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone in San Francisco, along with uh, John Thompson, also here, CEO and chief investment officer at Vilas Capital Management on the phone from Chicago and a noted short when it comes to Tesla. Dana, let me kick it off with you. This quarter, safe to say, surprised most. Question is, I mean, kind of, is it sustainable? Has something changed in the Tesla model? Have they turned the corner? 
Well, certainly, I mean, it looks like they've turned a corner, but, you know, as most people who follow the company closely know, they really pulled out all the stops in the third quarter to deliver as many cars as possible. You had volunteers, uh, you know, at delivery centers during the final weekend. You had people from throughout the company, like, moving cars around to all the different delivery centers. I mean, they really kind of pulled out all the stops to show a profit this quarter. And, you know, while it's certainly good news, it's like, okay, can they do this again and again and again? Musk says that they, you know, intend to be profitable going forward. Um, And so now it's just a question of like, are they in a sort of cadence where they can just sort of do this without so many theatrics and without so many Hail Marys? All right. So, John, come on in here. As Carol pointed out, you are a a noted uh, short. It's one of your biggest short uh, positions in the top three, uh, I believe. How do you read this report and how are you playing this from an investment perspective? Well, to, uh, uh, as I discussed uh, uh, with the producer, uh, I did cover the position, most of it, um, uh, a couple of days ago prior to the earnings release, uh, just because the stock was not going down on bad news and in, in a bad tape. So, um, And I did feel like they were going to sort of pull a rabbit out of the hat. We're looking to reshort it as it trades higher here. But I think the, the, the main issue is that, you know, yes, they sold a lot of these cars at very, very high ASPs selling prices for, you know, um, you know, which chewed up some of their backlog. I don't think that, that this is necessarily repeatable, especially when they get down into the thirty-five dollars or $40,000 price point for this car. I mean, it's obviously much easier to make a profit when the car is selling for $60,000 than for 40000 So I think the the... That plus the fact that the tax credits from the federal uh, government are going to be going away in a phased-out manner starting January 1st sort of means that if you ever wanted to buy a Tesla, getting it done by December 31st is is really important from this tax credit perspective. So I think, you know, if you look at what happened in Denmark and Norway and even in the United States and Georgia when tax credits go away, demand falls off a cliff. And, you know, I think that will happen, um, you know, in, in the, uh, you know, the right. first and second quarter of next year. But, um, you know, so we covered thinking the stock's going to rally here and then I'm going to reshort it. You're going to reshort it. Dan, address some of the things that John um, brought up, because we've been talking to him over the last couple of years, you know, about his position. Um, in terms of those tax credits, you know, how much of an impact, what are you hearing that it, it will be ultimately on the company? I mean, a lot of people, you know, I mean, the tax credit is a big deal, particularly for people who want the $35,000 version of the car. But by the time the $35,000 version of the car comes out, the tax credit is going to have is going to have ratcheted down. So they're not really going to be taking to take. They're not really going to be able to take advantage of it. That said, like a lot of people are kind of spending more money than they've ever spent on a car to get into a Model Three, and the trade-ins are not just coming from like BMW and Mercedes and Audi. They're coming from like Honda and Toyota Priuses. And so people are really stretching financially in order to get this car, you know, in the way that you upgraded from your flip phone to your iPhone back in the day. And so, you know, clearly the tax credit is like a big, it has a big impact for a certain demographic of owners, but not but not everyone. I mean, people are p- willing to pay more to, to get into this car. At least that's what from I'm hearing. I mean, I've heard from a lot of people who, you know, they really want the car. They were hoping to get the tax credit, but ultimately, like this is still the most expensive car they've ever bought, and they're and they're willing to pay that extra. 
So, John, I know we've talked to you about this a little bit in terms of your investment thesis. You know, obviously, part of it is model based, and by that I mean financial model, not necessarily like model three. Uh, although maybe it's some of that too. But how much of this also is about the CEO, Elon Musk, and you know? Carol, even in framing where the stock is, you know, talked about how the stock has now recovered everything that essentially Elon Musk took away uh, by some ill-advised tweets. So how do you balance uh, that out as you look at how to pursue this short? Well, he obviously uh, has some extremely strong points. I mean, he's a fantastic marketer. Um, He figured out that people want – fancy electric car before anyone else saw that market. I mean, you know, he was watching uh, Leonardo DiCaprio drive around in a Toyota Prius in Los Angeles saying, you know, this is wrong. Right. <laughs> and so, um, so the, 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 you know, I would say his genius is, is in marketing. Um, on the other hand, I think there's a lot of things that have been done by him and the company that have pushed boundaries. And in my opinion, have gone beyond the boundary of what is legal and ethical, and including his tweet about going private. Um, so, you know, I, I think eventually the accounting issues that I've seen, um, including this quarter, will catch up with them. But for now, uh, you know, it's sort of uh, he's trying to save the planet, get off his back is sort of the the mantra of the long and uh it's a hard thing to fight i mean i don't know dana it, it's interesting in in the story that uh you got out on the bloomberg today um i guess i don't know if you talked with or the daimler chief financial officer made um some comments i guess after the results and said how they bode well for the auto industry's wider roll of rollout of electric vehicles um so you know yeah how do we see this story should we look at it as you know tesla specific or more broadly an ev story well, I, so the Daimler comments, I believe, were made on the on the earnings call. Um, but I mean, I do think that there is an appetite for electric cars, and Tesla, you know, is the only company that just makes electric cars. Now the other automakers are kind of rolling out theirs. Um, whether they catch up or, you know, I mean, I feel like so, so oftentimes the conversation is framed as like, you know, which which automaker is going to be the Tesla killer? And to be clear, like the goal is not for different makers of electric vehicles to be killing each other. The goal the goal is to kind of transition people from driving ICE cars to electric. And so that's, that's sort of slowly beginning mm. to happen in that people are, you know, upgrading or, or, you know, making purchasing decisions where they're turning in their ICE and they're going electric. Now, it's going to take a long time for that to really happen on a mass scale. But, right. I mean, there is a sense that it is beginning to happen. And the fact that so many automakers have poured millions of dollars of their own investment into electrification, uh, you know, it's happening. Yeah, it is definitely happening. Uh, but fascinating to watch the trade. And uh, great to talk with both of you. Dana Hall, tech reporter at Bloomberg News from San Francisco. John Thompson, CEO and Chief Investment Officer at Vilas Capital Management, on the phone from Chicago. Tesla shares up almost 9%. This is Bloomberg. Carol, Carol Master knows that my favorite part of any show 
is when we get to talk a little private equity, yes. uh, especially when we have one of my favorite people stopping by the studio, Elisa Wood. She's a partner at KKR. You might have heard of it. Uh, she is around the Bloomberg Empire today because she's participating in our Bloomberg Private Capital Summit happening later on uh, this afternoon. We're so happy, Elisa, to have you here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio. So, earnings today. Life's pretty good in private equity right now. Yeah, why? What's going on out there? And listen, I think we're finally starting to see some volatility in the market, right? I mean, look at the last week plus. We've been waiting for this. We, A lot of folks are always asking, you know, does that make you scared? And this is a moment where I think we want to lean in, right? Dislocation is a really good thing for private equity. It's when we can um, buy at more interesting values. It's when we can take advantage of different dislocations in certain sectors. And we're pretty excited. We're, we're, we're armed and ready. I think, as you heard on the earnings call today, we have $58 billion of capital sitting on the sidelines you know that was bigger that was that was our aum what in 2008 so we're we're in a position today where we're poised we're ready it doesn't mean we haven't been putting capital to work but i think we're we're really ready for this next moment i love when you say more interesting valuations basically it's nicer to get things at a cheaper price (laughs) right (laughs) it always is right why why would you not (laughs) where are you guys looking i know real estate has certainly been a thing Mm -hmm. i understand you're looking a lot more over in asia Mm -hmm. um talk to us about where you guys are finding really interesting opportunities right now Yeah, honestly, I think you have to go international, but that doesn't mean the domestic isn't interesting either, right? I I think we're seeing a lot of global trends. Um, The trend of deconglomerization is probably the biggest one that we've been seeing. A lot of large corporate shedding, non-core subsidiaries, whether it's Unilever or Airbus or you know, CalSonic or Fiat, we actually just did a merger with them, um, one of their divisions um, we announced earlier in the week. There's there's finally a recognition that with a lot of the large multinational companies out there, they're not being rewarded in the public markets for mm-hmm. having 100 subsidiaries, right. right? So I think that's a trend we're seeing, and that's a global trend. Um, the other trend I would say we're seeing as well is buying complexity and selling simplicity. So what does that mean? It means we can go in and do roll-ups of very fragmented industries. Um, and you can actually get economies of scale and in, in synergies and, and really try to average down your valuation cost. Um, it's buying companies that maybe need more operational um, value creation to make them better businesses. Um, it's buying local champions and growing them globally. The market isn't valuing things that are more complex, things that have hair on them. And I think that's where we're getting pretty excited about where we're putting capital to work. And then I would say the final piece of it is, you know, if you look at Europe as a whole, um, Europe right now, valuations are cheaper than they are in the U.S. And you might argue that, is it because there's some political uncertainty? And the answer is, yeah, you'll see that. But I think you've got another couple of years of running room in Europe, and we're trying to take advantage of that as well. So, Lisa, you spend a lot of time with KKR's investors of, of all stripes all mm-hmm. around the world. And you know, one of the persistent themes has been, what, what are they, or one of the persistent questions, I should say, is, what sorts of funds, what sort of assets are they looking for mostly? Private credit has become like the biggest yeah. story. You cannot escape it. In fact, the panel that I'm moderating at the at the event you're participating in is all about private credit, direct lending. Is that consi- or is that true? I guess is that what you're mm-hmm. seeing from your investors, and why? It it is. I think I, I think it's. Let's answer the why first, and then we can tell a little bit about what we're seeing. In the why, I think there's a 
there's an acknowledgement that there's going to be a compression in returns okay. across you know the markets over the course of the next several years right the last Public, five years private, all, of, all it. of it right the last five years are going to look nothing like the next five years or and vice versa right so they're trying to figure out where can they get return and it's not going to be from the traditional asset classes that's probably where you're going to see the biggest compression so it's in the alternative space and it's private equity but it's also real assets it's infrastructure it's energy one of the biggest dislocations is in the energy market right now it's in private credit. Um, and that's why I think you're seeing there's a lot of capital on the sidelines, right? A lot of capital has come back to them, which is a good thing, right? The asset class has done very well. But capital now- Capital coming back to your investors and they're looking to put it to work. They're looking to put it to work. And so what do they do with that, right? They're trying to be more creative. They're trying to focus on top performing managers. So there is um, a bit of better managers are getting a bigger share of those dollars, right? So they're expanding their horizons. And we've seen that. So in the private credit space, you know, the banks and their readjustment since the great financial crisis has been in a place where they're not lending in the same way, right? So I think we're, we're seeing greater opportunities to put our own dollars to work and clients are putting it alongside us. 30 seconds to go. You selling to? I noticed you talked about First Data a little bit. That's obviously a big uh, position uh, that is growing. What are you selling? Where? How soon? Yeah, I think right now we're trying to monetize everything we can, right? Um, things that are mature, things that we've obviously done a lot of value creation behind. Um, we're not sitting on our hands and waiting, but we're obviously, we're actually selling more than we're putting to work right now, but I think you'd be surprised if I didn't say that. I would. Carol would too. <laughs> oh man, I wish we had more, more time. Come back. Thank you. Please. Love to. Elisa Wood, partner, KKR, here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Uh, she knows a thing or two, Carol Masser. I know. Uh, about private equity. Uh, one of the best. I would say so. <laughs> you are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. talk a little bit about opportunities right now. Uh, and we really, Jason and I love talking to the folks over at Yachtman Asset Management. The AMG Yachtman Special Opportunities Fund, check out this, has beaten just about all of its peers over the past three years, returning on average 14% annually. Adam Suze is with us, partner and portfolio manager at Yachtman Asset Management and manager of that fund. They've got uh, roughly about $13.9 billion in assets under management. And he joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Did I miss, miss anything up there? Sounds good. Okay, good. Glad to be here. <laughs> Glad to have you here. My first question, because I do want to get into picks and how you uh, how you guys choose stocks. Um, in an earnings season, do you often find opportunities, especially if maybe there's an earnings miss or something and a stock gets beaten up? I mean, how do you look at the earnings season? Is this a, an opportunity? It's always an opportunity when stocks are moving either up or down. We're bottom-up stock pickers. We focus mm-hmm. a lot on the individual businesses, the business quality, and most importantly, the price that we're paying. My fund is able to look globally uh, all over the world and invest in any size company. So there's a lot of opportunities out there. But certainly when stocks are moving up or down, it gets us interested because it might get us to a place where we think from that price, there's attractive risk adjusted returns going forward. Well, and, you know, we dig into your fund a little bit and, and the top holdings. You know, let's talk about a couple of them. You know, Samsung is one that uh, that jumps out to me in part because it's a well-known name, but, you know, has not been, let's say, a smooth ride <laughs> for the past uh, few years. What do you like about that one? So it's one of the most recognized names in the world, Samsung Electronics, your phones, your TVs. We're really excited about the memory business. That's a business that has historically been very cyclical. But what has changed is it went from many players 
making memory chips down to really just three. So now it's an oligopoly industry. They're making a lot of money right now in a secularly growing industry with a profitable long-term outlook. Uh, they're the leader, but most importantly, from our perspective as value investors, it's a really cheap stock. They yeah. have a conservative balance sheet and a lot of opportunity. Do you, as a value guy, are you finding it easier to find opportunities right now with the, the market uh, pullbacks, whether it's over in Asia, whether it's here in the United States? Because I'm just curious if we are seeing a rotation into value at this point. Yeah, there's been a lot written about yeah. value investing has, has struggled. Uh, the nice thing about the Special Opportunities Fund, it can invest anywhere. So there's a very wide opportunity set. It's heavily focused now internationally. So over 70% of the portfolio is invested outside of the U.S. Because there are better value opportunities? Because that's where we're finding the best opportunities. Where's and is that recent? Is that shift recent? It's actually since the fund was launched four and a half years ago. It's always been overweight international. Huh. Uh, roughly call it 60 to 75% outside the U.S. So where... Are you finding opportunities outside the U.S.? You mentioned Samsung. Certainly yeah, there isn't a, a top-down theme or specific area of the market. Certainly, uh, if you look at the Hong Kong market uh, or an area where prices have been going down recently, we're constantly trolling for opportunities uh, through there. But our goal really is to just turn over lots and lots of rocks to try to find a few undiscovered gems. For example, Bentham IMF is one of is the top holding in the fund. It's a litigation finance company based in Australia. Wow. Litigation finance. So how do you find a company like that? We turn over those rocks. Yeah. We look at hundreds and hundreds of companies to find a company like Bentham that's in a niche industry that's growing and offers attractive returns, but is relatively unique. It's not covered by banks. It's based way over in Australia. It's small. It, it is small, but in a very growing industry when you look – the amount of their case portfolio, yeah. if you look four years ago, was $3 billion. Now it's $5.8 billion. So they're showing strong growth, and we think it can be a much bigger company over the long term. When you say you turn over rocks, in other words, you've got algorithms and that are popping up stocks, and then you start digging deeper? So not so much algorithms, but the old-school value investing, looking at the lots screens. and lots of annual yeah. reports, yeah. Uh, screening for potential opportunities, and uh, finding the ones that we think for our investors offer attractive returns. So what else, if you had to pick another of your you know, top 10, would you point out? So another company I'd point out is a, a company called Computer Services. Mm -hmm. Boring name, but actually a, a pretty solid business. Sounds underneath. made up. Yeah, it's a solid business <laughs> underneath. Like, that, come on, people. Couldn't you have done better? <laughs> no, it's a, it's a tough How about one. interesting computer services? <laughs> it's a tough one to Google. But they, yeah, they do community uh, software for community banks. Ah. 18 ah. years in a row, they've grown profits right Kentucky. through the Great Recession. Right, right? Yeah, Based middle in Kentucky. of nowhere, Kentucky. Uh, right through the Great Recession, they grew earnings. Competitors like Fiserv or Jack Henry trade at 30 or 35 times earnings. This does a very similar business, grows in similar rates, but it trades over the counter. Is it doesn't trade on a major exchange. Is it a potentially a takeout by one of the bigger uh, financial players, maybe? I think at some point, yeah. uh, the natural uh, goal would be to sell. But right now, they continue to compound value. And it's a type of business that offers safe, sort of risk-adjusted returns at this point in the cycle when broadly the markets are expensive. And so going back to, a little bit to something that Carol asked uh, near the top of the conversation, you know, how does your analysis change? How does even your team's approach change as we go into a market like this? That is very, it feels very different. I mean, we just come into the studio every day. Mm -hmm. It's a different feeling market. Are you guys down in Austin just sort of heads down, doing your work, your team sort of doing all this uh, uh, analysis? Or do you take a different uh, approach at all in a market like this? Only about 30 seconds. Uh, we spend a lot of time, you know, bottom up, looking at individual opportunities. 
you know, this this lack of volatility that we've had in kind of the last two years is probably the more unusual thing. Yeah. What we've seen in the last month or so is a little more usual. And as value investors who like dispersion, like stocks moving up and down to find, try to find a few opportunities, we look at it as an opportunity. I think that's such an important point yeah, because we keep stuff. saying, oh, my God, the market's moving. Mm-hmm. Well, that's more normal and right. typical versus the complacency we've seen for a long time. And we have talked to a lot of value guys who are sort of saying, all right, yeah, let's get back to work. Finally. <laughs> Very good stuff. Adam Sue's partner and portfolio manager at Yachtman Asset Management, uh, your fund, the Special Opportunities Fund, the AMG Yachtman Special Opportunities Fund, top performer. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.